0: On today's show, you may remember him from the Monster Squad, or maybe from the Hogan family, or on one of the first sitcoms on Fox, Mr. President. Please welcome Andre Gower.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. This is Andre Gower, and Mike Rand is in the goddamn club.
0: Everyone, welcome to the Mike Grand Show and today's special guest is from the movie The Monster Squad. Please welcome Andre Gower. Hey, Andre, how are you?
1: I'm uh, doing pretty good, Mike. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here today. So we're going to have a great time, everybody. So the first thing I want to know from you, Andre, is how did you get started in acting?
1: Uh, well, you know, a lot of people know that I started at a very, very young age. Uh, so I started really when I was around five years old. Um, and it wasn't, you know, something I woke up and got in the car and just said, hey, I want to do this and, you know, <laughs> drove drove myself down to the first auditions. Uh, my sister is actually a little bit older than I am. And she was actively working in film and television for a few years before I came around. And so I was just sort of always around it, even kind of from day one, literal day one, and then, you know, when I got to be about five, it was just sort of um, kind of the natural next step, uh, you know, to kind of follow her around even more and actively be involved, and, you know, I think that was sort of, you know, the interesting segue is, you know, if I didn't have an older sister that wasn't in the business at that time, would I have ever even been around it or would I have even been around, <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, so you think back and you're like, so many things that could have changed or gone different directions. Uh, but, you know, it worked out pretty good. And um, I just, you know, it was kind of next. And it was something that I got eased into or thrown into, however you want to phrase it. And, you know, it was something that I was just sort of comfortable with, I guess, and took to it Uh, you know quite easily you know a lot of people are you know um, you know not comfortable you know performing or being in front of people or being in front of a camera especially and for some reason at that age uh, it didn't affect me negatively and um, you know I kind of took to it like a duck to water I guess and it just went from there started in a bunch of commercials and print work and tv and film and you know that just went on for years and years.
0: And then one of the first big breaks you got was on a soap opera, The Young and the Restless, correct? Uh,
1: yeah, that was one of them. That was, I think I was probably nine. I, you know, I'd done quite a bit up to that time. And yeah, I joined Young and Restless. I think I was on it for almost two years. Uh, yeah, Young and Restless was actually great. And, you know, it, it for kids, it may be different because there's not there's always a few kids on soaps you know especially back in the day when there was more than one or two soaps now there's only like one or two left uh back then I think there was like a dozen and uh you know super popular and 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 great training work you know for any type of actor you know no matter what age and I was fortunate enough to be brought in uh you know back on those days on Young and Restless, uh, there was three major families on the show. Now you know. Now most everybody just knows the two, the, you know, the Abbots and the Newmans, and my family was the Prentice family, and they were the other third. But then they ended up getting rid of them, getting rid of them, and so uh, that was you know the end of the run for that family. And I was I was towards you know the last year or so, or two on that, uh, you know, kind of you know storyline. Uh, you know, I, I remember it fondly, you know, it was, it was a hell of a long time ago, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it was, it was great times. And um, some of the people that were on the show at that time are still on that show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then you did a lot of guest starring in the beginning on a lot of different shows. So I want to name some of the shows so people know, and then we'll go back into a few of them and I'll ask you a little bit about them, but it's a um, very impressive group of shows here basically almost all of them i've watched st elsewhere a team highway to heaven night rider night court tj hooker the twilight zone square one my two dads mr belvedere so i want to talk a little bit about some of these guest appearances on some of these shows because i definitely watched them um the first one i want to ask you about is night court so what did you do on night court and uh, how was that experience
1: you know, obviously coming into that, you know, a lot of these experiences with the shows, you met, you know, you watch these shows and you're a fan and an audience member of these great shows, and then you get a chance to actually be on one. So it's, you know, that's a whole other experience that very few people get to have. So you know, that's really kind of awesome when you think about it. Uh, Night Court, I mean, how funny was Night Court? I mean, it had great characters, great writing. Uh, it was a little pushing the edge sometimes, you know, for primetime comedy in the mid '80s, and it was perfect. And I just thought. Uh, I thought John Larroquette was one of the funniest people that have ever been on yep, television. Dan Fielding. And uh, you know, and then you have these great things like Richard Maul as Bull, the bailiff, and and this was right what I do remember. So, what we were, we were just a family that had uh, it was actually a funny storyline because you know, night court was about night overnight shift arraignment court. So if you get arrested in New York, you go right to this, you know, arraignment court. And we were this totally super prim and proper Midwest, you know, stick in the mud family. And we were super goofy, but we were totally fish out of water and we ended up staying. I think the storyline was we were in the, we, we booked the wrong type of hotel and it was sort of like this seedy uh, kind of sex hotel or something. And we were, we got caught in that, in that, uh, in that hotel uh, for not paying our bill or something. Cause he walked out I can't remember when it was and it was just this funny thing, and and me and I can't remember the gal that played my sister's uh, real name, but we're just these totally prim and proper, straight laced Midwesterners caught in this bad situation, and super goofy and corny, uh, and so that was our part of it. But what was great about being on Night Court for a week, you know, because you rehearse for a week and then you that was a you know sitcom live audience three camera, and then you do the show on Friday nights, is you get to rehearse and 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 play with all these awesome people for. Four or five days, right? And you know, to, to meet Harry Anderson and Richard Mall and John Laroquette, And this was uh just before uh, blanking on her name, the original uh the original DA before Marky Post joined, um and Ellen Ellen something. But then yes. Richard Mall had in the older bailiff selma diamond
0: Yes, yeah, so i was gonna uh, ask you who the so bailiff, selma diamond who was selma and this this it? was
1: what's interesting about this if i have it correct is she was there for like the first couple days and then she wasn't feeling well so they wrote her out of the episode and she wasn't in the episode that we taped and then unfortunately i think it was the next week that she passed away or the week after that and so it was that transition time of having such a funny creature like selma diamond <laughs> Uh, that you met for a day or two, but then she wasn't there. But then that was the the reason because she, you know, she was she was not feeling well, and then she ended up passing away shortly after. And so that was very memorable too. But I remember everybody just being, you know, super nice. And you know, we weren't the a plot of the show. We were sort of just kind of the b plot. You know, I had to do with the 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 hearings part. And I, I mean, just what an experience. I mean, that was you know you can't beat that.
0: Yep. And then another show you were on was It's a Living. So who who did you have as the waitresses on there? Were you there with Ann Jillian?
1: That was yes. Yeah, so it was early enough for yeah. You know your shows, man. It's, like, it's a living. Was actually on longer than most people think, but no one remembers the show. And uh, it yeah, was yeah, because it got um,
0: rebooted and then put into syndication.
1: Yeah, it was uh, Ann Jillian. Um, oh, who played Dot? Um, Edwards.
0: Gail, Gail Edwards.
1: Gail yep, Edwards. Crystal Bernard. And, and Crystal Bernard. And the very
0: long, young fellow, very young fellow. uh, um, I think it was just, was it just them? And then of course,
1: course, uh, Paul. uh,
0: Paul, um, Oh, Kipple, I think.
1: Paul Kipple played the piano and he was super funny. Like what a great character, right? And um, I ended up coming, I was, uh, I think I was, I think I was Dot's son and uh, they were getting married or something and there i was it was on i think it was on two episodes like they, one or two episodes that spanned another one and I, this was actually interesting because i had never watched the show when it was on as a kid because i think it's a living was on a little bit later as a sitcom in, in the on their programming and i don't think i ever saw it so i end up going to the show about these you know uh servers in this you know high-rise restaurant bar uh in downtown la and uh, i remember where we shot it i remember being on the set did a couple episodes and it was, it was just fun. And, um, it, it's, it's actually a funnier show than people realize. And, uh, I wish more people knew about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then another fun show that a lot of kids grew up watching was square one television. Yeah. And you, if I'm not mistaken, was on the math net.
1: Yeah. So Perfect. square one was sort of like this overall programming for, uh, PBS and, or syndication where they ran it, and Mathnet was this show that was a spoof on Dragnet, uh, but instead of solving crimes with you know a badge and a gun, you know the two detectives solved crimes using math, and it seemed super corny and it seemed, but it was it was almost like one of those learn it was a it was a learning show to where you you know did math problems and functions and equations and and figured out like it was it was it was not simple math either they did they did it in a in a very uh, you know, uh, absorbable way, but every every scene had a math problem in it that you had to solve, and that was always never my biggest suit. Like I'm okay at math now, but when I was a kid, I hated math like everybody else did. And it was it was fun doing the show, and you know it was a spoof uh, of Dragnet, which was funny, and the two main actors were just absolutely hilarious, trying to play this totally absurd, campy, over the top thing that was kids programming. And they did it so well that it almost didn't even come across as camp. They were so good at it. And uh, I, I just played a guest star in the role because uh, I was a, I was a groupie for this famous rock star named uh, Steve Stringbean, I think, instead of Bruce Springsteen. And he gets kidnapped by this guy. And I'm the leader of his uh, fan club and, and and an aspiring drummer. And my name was uh, Rimshot. It was my favorite character name I ever had. My name was Rimshot. And uh, <laughs> And uh, you know, we just shot. You know, around, I think we shot mostly in the valley for you know three or four or five days. Went out to the coast for one shot, and you know, for a small, lower budget, you know, PBS type show, that was there was a lot of work done on that. It was, it was really fun. And James Earl Jones was on that show. Yeah, <laughs> the voice of Darth Vader was on the <laughs> show. It's insane.
0: And then a little later on, you had a couple other guest appearances. Um, on one of them was My Two Dads with Stacey Keenan. Yeah.
1: Also, a great show which I always celebrate because, yes, you had uh, Paul Reiser and Greg Evigan as the the two dads, uh, and but they were two single hetero guys that ended up they weren't really sure who was the father of you know Stacy character, uh, but so she just ended up living with both. It was it was a great concept, great idea about these two guys stepping up and taking care of this daughter, and. Uh, first of all, Stacey Keenan, super nice, always super cute, you know, always crushed on Stacey Keenan growing up because she's super funny and 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 so cute. But um, I was actually doing another show at the time. I remember I was on Mr. President uh, during this and they called me in to just do this guest spot role as sort of the schmarmy kind of, you know, kind of, you know, you know, pseudo boyfriend uh, that goes to school with Stacey. And what was great about that show is that the, the kid was basically the lead of the show. You know, all the storylines revolved around her, you know, which was new for the time and or fairly new. And, but she had uh, her sort of best friend slash boyfriend on the show uh, was played by uh, Giovanni Ribisi. And this was one of the first things that he did. And he's so funny and so good on that show. And then to see Vonnie, you know, grow up and do all the great stuff that he's done. But, you know, you always got to go back to the original days when we were hanging out as kids and, and doing shows like My Too Dad. But I remember it was an off week of Mr. President. And I got asked to come in and just drop in on this show. And I just came in, I think, on the Thursday. And then we shot the show on Friday again. And then I was back to Mr. President on Monday. So that was a nice, fun, little, quick kind of escape and uh, great guest spot opportunity.
0: Yep, and then we're going to talk about Mr. President in one second. There's just one more guest appearance I want to ask you about, and that is Mr. Belvedere. Oh,
1: yeah. I was, uh, I was just talking about this episode uh, yesterday on, a, on an interview. Um, I mean, great show, huge network sitcom, smash hit, right? Um, and another show that was great because it was about a family and uh, had three kids on the shows, and the three kids were major parts of the show. And as Bryce, who played the younger um, character, Wesley, uh, you know, was growing up, he started getting more to do on the show. And this was an episode where um, there's a new kid in school and he invites him over and he's really cool. And, you know, seems like he's got a really cool, successful family and has done a lot of cool stuff and always treats his friends to cool things. But he doesn't, you know, he does that as as a facade because he can't read. And Wesley finds out that his friend, Uh, can't read. And so he helps him with his, his reading. (laughs) It it, it was another kind of like very special episode, you know, on a very special episode of (laughs) Dear, you know, the cool kid can't, the cool kid can't read.
0: (laughs) And then your, so your first big break as a starring character on a TV show then was Mr. President, correct? And that had just come out on the Fox network or did you have... Exper- um, a lead in something else before that. I
1: had a number of, uh, of you know, what's interesting because, you know, we talk about the, you know, these great guest star roles and, you know, the, there's, they're, they're numerous, you know, uh, you know, in count. And the only reason you're free, uh, you know, to do a lot of guest star roles is because you're not committed or under contract with another show that's going for years and years and years. And so if you almost look at my television resume at that time, uh, it's fairly robust you know, with a lot of guest star roles, yes, we've talked about that, but then a lot of other television series that only went a season or maybe two. And so I did five or six TV shows that only went one season (laughs) instead of one show that goes seven years that everybody knows as a staple, right? And so that's sort of this, you know, kind of anti-television career, uh, even though I've done more series than almost, you know, everybody else that we all know that they've done one show for a long time. And you know there's trade-offs to that, and uh, you know one of the positive trade-offs is you get to do, you know, you have ability to, to move to the next project and and are available to do other things, and you know even going all the way back to like '84, '85, um, I, I one of my favorite experiences is is working with um, a group of uh, creatives and execs and writers off of the Fox lot. So this almost kind of it's kind of a primer all the way up to Fox, the network, but off the Fox lot doing um, shows uh, that were created for NBC. And one of them was called fathers and sons. And that was I think, just a little couple, a couple years, a little ahead of its time to have a show that was dedicated about four boys and their relationship with their fathers. And it was created by uh, Michael Zinberg and, um, he was a big television name at the time. He's still a huge, he's still directing huge network TV shows right now. Michael Zimberg is still plugging away. And he, he, he produced on uh, the original Bob Newhart show back in the seventies and mod and all these other great, you know, television iconic shows. Uh, but what happened from there, that, that sort of stemmed a relationship with the lot and these producers and people like Michael Zimberg and Randy Zisk uh, who became huge names in television uh, to that I, and I went from show to show with them and fathers and sons was great because I played this great character uh, and like I said it was about four boys and their relationship with their fathers and it was a great concept I thought and I played the cool kid I, I had to wear cool clothes I got to do my hair great and you know be, be very very fashionable in the show and Merlin Olsen was coming off of uh, Little House of the Prairie and Father Murphy and was the headliner of this show and um, Nicholas Guest and then my dad happened to be Ricky Nelson, who was returning to television after 35 years or something, or 30 years, you know, coming from Ozzy and Harriet and being a huge, you know, you know rock star, you know, pop star in, in Americana history. And we shot the pilot and the pilot, you know, airs and the show gets picked up for like five more episodes as a mid-season replacement. This is old school TV, right? And then if that does well, then you'll come back for a full season after that. Unfortunately, after we shot the pilot, This is when Ricky Nelson died in a plane crash. And that sort of took a little of the star power out of the show about this icon returning to television. And then it sort of totally took my character, you know, for a loop because now it's about a show about their sons and their fathers and now this father's missing. And so they just had to rewrite it and actually bring in the mother to be like, my dad is now like that absent father type storyline. And he never shows up and always disappoints. And that's how it was set up anyway, but, you know, the show kind of lost a little of its steam when Ricky Nelson, um, you know, died in a plane crash and, you know, we, we didn't get picked up, but that relationship with Zinberg and Zisk and all these great creatives from that show, I went to other shows with them, like Heart of the City and a couple of other things that they were developing and guest spots off that lot. Um, and then that, that led up to 80, summer of 86, uh, you know, in doing the movie, The Monster Squad. And then right after Monster Squad ended is when Fox became, or when Monster Squad was coming out the next year, that's when Fox was a new network and starting the new programming. And I got offered one of the brand new shows on the fourth network. All from that history, you know, going back (laughs) from those other shows off the Fox lot with Michael Zinberg and all
0: all those people. So now the Fox network is launched. Before that, there was only CBS, NBC, and ABC. And you were one of the first shows sitcoms on Fox. It had Married with Children, Tracy Allman Show, Duet, and you were the fourth one. Um, So tell us what it was like working on there. So you had uh, George C. Scott was Mr. President. And then you also had Conrad Bain on the show as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, talk about about icons that are involved in the show, you know, on camera and off camera. Uh, The show was produced by Johnny Carson's production company, and executive produced by a guy named Ed Weinberger, who is literally a Titan in the industry on, on television sitcoms. And then you bring in people, you know, you don't get any more iconic than George C. Scott and then Conrad Bain, who everybody loves from Maud and Different Strokes. And, uh, and after the second season we went, it was, it was guaranteed to go for two seasons. We switched from single camera film comedy to three camera live audience sitcom style and they got rid of the mother character and brought in the aunt and you just added to the fire with Madeline Kahn so you have these amazing people and great guest stars coming in like Eugene Roach and things like that which just blow your mind because they're so funny and so good at what they do and I also got to work with uh you know one of my tv sisters you know for the longer time Maddie Corman who had done a you know a ton of tv and a bunch of films and uh you know as a New York-based actor And she's still she's still cranking it out. Everybody recognizes Maddie and she looks exactly as she does when she was 18. It's amazing. And uh, I don't I don't look the same as I did when I was on that show. Uh, Similar, but she looks exactly the same. It's 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 incredible. And that was a great experience, not only doing this big show. uh, Now, great. There was some other stuff to experience on the show with some, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say egos, but uh, you know, kind of uh, you know characters and and people behind the scenes and off the scenes, and there was a lot going on off camera on this show, and but it was a great experience, and I I only lament that I only absorbed a small percentage of what was going on around me and and hanging out with these amazing people uh, to to listen to their stories because even though when I was fourteen at this time I had done a lot of television, it pales in the comparison you know, to the people that you're sitting across the table from or sitting on the couch next to like Madeline God and George C. Scott and Conrad Bain. And, you know, just I remember sitting around and listening to just, you know, when nothing's going on, just, you know, really shooting the breeze with everybody. And they're telling these stories from 20, 30, 40 years ago. And, you know, something happened on stage off Broadway or, you know, on the set of a Mel Brooks film. And you're sitting here going, I can't absorb all of this. What is happening here? And, you know, just please retain some of this at some point for the future. And, uh, you know, so don't, don't just run around like a, you know <laughs> like a dorky 14 year old and, and not pay attention to what's going on here. So I, I remember having fun on that show and everybody was great. The cast was great. The crew was great. And we were at the Paramount lot. And what was really cool about doing Mr. President is we were on stage 19 uh, for, for that second season. And that's the happy day stage. So, you know, that's an iconic building on an iconic lot. And it's one of my favorite lots. I love Paramount. They have a, I love their commissary back there. Great food, good cheeseburgers. <laughs> and uh, Webster was right next to us. Yep. So I got to hang sure. out in the manual lot. Cheers was right down the road uh, on a different stage. And then a bunch of movies were happening and we used to play basketball because I've always been a basketball player and uh, ended up leaving, going to college to play basketball, uh, you know, when I was uh, out of high school and, I used to play at lunchtime with Woody Harrelson and a bunch of crew members on the Paramount basketball court. And uh, then there was this little show that was starting at the same time um, that another kid actor had gotten cast in. And we were friends tangentially. We would hang out on the lot and I would ride my bike over and visit him on the set of this little show called Star Trek Next Generation. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I was actually uh, before that show even aired, I got to see those sets and meet that cast briefly and, you know, hang out with Will Wheaton for a little bit. And so that was... That was an amazing, I was on the bridge. I saw the bridge of the Enterprise before the show even aired. And I was like, they're doing another Star Trek show? <laughs> I was like, I hope this is big. <laughs> and of course it turned out to be galactic. <laughs> yep.
0: And then eventually after um, Mr. President went off the air, you did do a recurring character on the Hogan family yeah. you played on there. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that was a great kind of uh, thing to, you know, be able to slide into because the show had been on for years, you know, started as Valerie. And then, uh, you know, when Sandy Duncan came on, it changed the Hogan family. Well, I think the show had already been on five or six seasons or more by the time I even got there. And what was awesome is another show, you know, that had kids, you know, that had three younger actors as, you know, main parts of the show. And of course, you had Jason Bateman as the older brother, and then you had the two twins who... Don't look like any, they don't look anything like each other, but they were twins. in Danny Ponce and Jeremy Licht, who, you know, amazingly enough, you know, when I moved back to LA uh, in 2013, like we're we we reconnected and we're all still friends again. So you know, we used to hang out all the time again, but we hadn't seen each other in you know 20 years, and that was a great experience because I thought one that was actually a a better show and a funnier show than than most people give it credit for although most people remember it being fun and even when you transitioned into Sandy Duncan that took the show in a different direction and you had you had great uh you know you know next door neighbors like Edie McClurg and and um I came in as the friend of uh Jeremy and Danny's characters because Jason Bateman had his two his two buddies and they had a lot of fun stuff and now it was time to bring in some friends for the younger sons and I was one of the friends and it was fun on that because I got to play sort of um, a little departure from normally what I used to play Uh, you know I was I was sort of the 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 bad I don't say bad influence but I was a little sketchy I was I was a little sketchy (laughs) and um, I was I was. I was always kind of like looked at with a side eye by the adults on the show and, and Jason Bateman's character and all that. So it was fun to sort of play that anti, you know, anti kind of, you know, kid next door.
0: Yep. And then all this television experience you have also segued into the film industry as well, because you've done some films. Um, the biggest hit that you've had is The Monster Squad, so can you tell us what it was like filming that? how did you get involved in that? Because in the beginning, it wasn't a huge hit. And then it just blew up many years later. So talk us through that and let us know what that was like for you.
1: You know, it was one of those, you know, obviously, you know, we've, uh, we've already talked about probably about 10 years almost worth of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, if you want to call it a career or, you know, kind of working pathway um, all the way from, you know, even before Young and Restless, all the way up to Hogan family that, I mean, that's at least 10 years worth of time and a a lot of stuff sprinkled in between there and, and a lot of, you know, good opportunities. And, you know, when you're a kid in the business of, you know, a certain age or a certain uh, level of, uh, I don't want to say status, but, you know, um, availability or, or no ability, like if you're known around town and you read for everything. And so, It's not just me it's me and everybody else of my age group we all read for the same movie same tv shows and you don't really see it as competition uh you know it's just that's just how the business works and you know i've read for every huge movie that came out you know just like everybody else did and came very close you know different stuff and it it, you know when you don't get a big movie it's disappointing because you know you know it's going to be big uh, but it's, you know, sometimes you're not the right choice and sometimes, you know, there's a, you know, there's a better option and especially with movies that I know I wanted to do. And then I see them, I was like, no, nah, this is still really good. You know, it's like, I, I wish I was in it cause it's so good, but it's the choices they make are great. And, you know, there's a handful of those movies that I wish that I was in that I came really close to. So it's just really kind of that ongoing grinder audition process, uh, unless you're getting offered roles, like, you know, you eventually get to, um. And Monster Squad came up as this, you know, kind of big studio movie uh, that was being, um, you know, shot in the fall of 86 and it was, you know, regular audition process. The interesting thing about Monster Squad that, you know, you know, many people know, but some don't know is I never auditioned for the role that I ended up getting, uh, which ended up being the lead of the film. I uh, initially read and screen tested and met many times for the role of Rudy, which was the cool kid, which, Uh, The reason I wasn't cast as Rudy is because Ryan Lambert, who came into as, as Rudy, you know, came in and absolutely smashed his, you know, smashed his screen tests as Rudy and became Rudy in that moment. And, but I was very fortunate that someone at the time in the group of producers or, you know, whether it was Fred or Shane Black or Penny Perry, the casting director, you know, in those weeks that they were deciding on these characters, and and someone thought of me when they were thinking of who they were going to cast as Sean Crenshaw, in the lead of the film, which is an important role, and they read everybody in town, um, and they even read this other kid for a different role, and someone I don't I still don't know who who it was, but someone, you know, for, fortunately enough for me, you know, had the idea. It's like, hey, what about that Andre kid? What about Andre Gower that we read for Rudy? If we, you know, take the gel out of his hair and cut it all off and give him some, you know, ill-fitting clothes, could he be Sean? And apparently the rest of their group agreed with whoever came up with that idea. And I got the call and said, you got that movie. And, you know, they actually cast you as the lead instead of the role you read for. And that was certainly a, a fortunate you know, happening from for myself, because, you know, look what happened going forward. You know, we go and shoot this movie. And it's a great experience. And it's a fun shoot. And it comes out later that summer, you know, to not box office success. And, you know, there's a number of reasons uh, why that happened. I, th- I think it's a total of like four or five main reasons that killed the opportunity for Monster Squad to have a successful box office run. And none of it was our fault or the director's fault or whatever. I think it had to do with the rating It had to do with uh, two parallel yet contradicting marketing campaigns that were kind of confusing. Uh, like I said, the rating didn't help um, the reviews that came out previously of the opening did not help whatsoever. Cause they were very, you know, very polarizing and, and almost contradictory to each other as well. And, Back in that day, you know, you have about 48 hours, maybe 72 hours, if your movie's a success or not. And if it doesn't reach whatever number that some studio executive or accountant puts as a goal, then your movie's gone. If it doesn't reach that in that opening weekend, then you're out and they're moving on to the next thing. And something with Monster Squad, being the timing that it came out, it came out two weeks after Lost Boys came out, which was a smash, and was still going robust when we premiered. So it kind of took a little thunder out of us, I believe. And it was a different audience. You know, The cooler older teenagers were gonna go see Lost Boys and they didn't wanna go see a kids movie, which they viewed Monster Squad was. So that was one of the you know, fifth or sixth thing that kind of you know, killed the success or the potential of Monster Squad coming out and being a word of mouth type of box office success. Because I think the kids that did go see it instantly connected with it and really liked it and then went to their school on Monday and go, hey man, you got to see this movie I just saw. Let's go back this weekend and see it. And when they did, it wasn't in the theaters anymore. And it 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 didn't last, you know, very long in most markets. I think the most was three or four weeks in some obscure markets. And mostly, I think the average was like two weekends and was gone, which is technically only one week. <laughs> and I think that's what hurt the hurt the chances. Um, and then, you know, crazily enough. 19 years later, uh, or, you know, you know, the year after it comes out and doesn't do well, most of the fans, which, you know, there's a legion worldwide of big Monster Squad fans all over the place. It's, it's amazing. Uh, they saw it on HBO and recorded it and watched it over and over and over again. Or they went to their local video store and just rented, you know, the, the, the hell out of that tape, and, you know, eventually to where they either just kept it or the store manager just gave it to them. Uh, you know, I've heard that story about a thousand times from a thousand different video stores. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, but the movie was, for all intents and purposes, kind of dead and buried. Um, it, it didn't get a big cable run. It didn't get, you know, any other kind of release. It was on Laserdisc, but a very small run in the early 90s. And it was sort of gone and forgotten for about 16, 19 years, you know, however we want to start the clock. And we ended up doing this cast reunion screening on 35 millimeter Two shows on, uh, you know, a Saturday evening in Austin, Texas at the original Alamo Drafthouse. And that's when the whole world just blew up. And, you know, the fans connected, you know, via the internet and chat rooms and websites. And then all of a sudden, Monster Squad had this huge resurgence that honestly thought would last for, you know, six months, maybe a year, like we'd still be getting to do some cool stuff a year later. And that was 15 years ago last week. And we haven't stopped, you know, having the attention and the appearances and the, you know, just kind of envelop, enveloping, you know, kind of attachment and love that these fans have for this movie. And, you know, that's what led up, you know, after a, a number of years of that, when I thought it would, you know, peter out and, and, and go away, I realized that these fans were really connected to this movie in some way. And, and for some reason, and some were the same reasons and some were different reasons. But I kept hearing these amazing stories from these individuals all over the world, really, or face to face all over, you know, uh, the US and and, and, and in London and things like that. And I realized that we were experiencing something different than just regular fandom. And fandom has become this whole other thing in the last decade,
0: right? Had you had any clue, I'm sorry to interrupt. Had you had any clue um, before that initial screening that there were this many fans out there? Or was that a shock to you? None whatsoever.
1: I knew there was a handful of people because they would recognize you or, you know, I went to college and people like, oh, my God, I loved that movie. And I was like, oh, you saw it. And it was it was really a uh, no inkling to it, you know, for any of us, you know, be it me or even Fred Decker, the co-writer and director or Ryan Lamb or Ashley Bank, who we, you know, for the next 15 years, we've been Uh, you know, on a, a, you know, fairly busy, kind of robust, you know, kind of a parent schedule, you know, up until last year. And um, it was just a a huge surprise. And the bigger surprise was we all thought it wouldn't last that long, and it hasn't stopped. (laughs) And hearing those stories over that time is what really, you know, made me kind of look at it a little bit differently. And realized that this fandom and this connection and this imprinting this film that had on these these people that saw it whenever they saw it and however they saw it meant something to them and i thought it was unique in in comparison to other films and other fan bases and i realized that their stories uh were a story and that's where the documentary originated out of was it wasn't about a, you know the documentary wolfman's got nards is not it's not a making of documentary it's not a where are they now documentary it's not a straight behind the scenes documentary and it certainly isn't a hey this was from the 80s and everybody loves the 80s now so here's a big spoonful of nostalgia for you and then that's it it was really the point of the documentary was to investigate and interrogate the question of why this movie or why something like a movie can connect to people and connect people all over uh, so deeply and that's that's what we started with
0: so you've got the documentary out now. So where can people see the documentary?
1: Yeah, yeah. It uh, unfortunately took uh, a, a little longer than you know anticipated or we wish for to actually get it released out to the world after our amazing festival run um, about two years ago. And um, but right now, if you are in the U.S. and Canada, um, you can order a Blu-ray or DVD on Amazon. Uh, Or you can go to your uh, favorite VOD platform, be it Google Play or iTunes or Dish Network or your local cable provider for on-demand service and rent or digitally download, purchase the film. Uh, And that's in the U.S. and Canada. And as we speak, we are working on the international markets. So hopefully very soon we'll be announcing, you know, uh, the U.K. and, um, you know, South America, Latin America, Australia, Asia, um, and all over Europe. So hopefully, you know, all that will be, you know, news coming out, uh, in the next couple of weeks.
0: And what are you, what are you currently working on now?
1: Uh, currently working on promoting the doc now that we actually have it released out to the world and still, you know, st- still doing a ton of, you know, podcasts and interviews and appearances about that and other things in general, um, I'm actually going to the Mahoning Pennsylvania drive-in movie theater next weekend to do a double build of the, of the monster squad and the documentary. And I can't wait. Cause I'm a huge drive-in theater fan. I've loved the drive-in. So this is really, you know, a, a checklist item for me. And, you know, we didn't get to do a lot last year. So now we're, we're, we're able to get out into the world a little bit and, and, and have events, uh, although still safely. And on project wise, you know, there's still a hand. I've always got a handful of projects on, you know, on on in my pocket or underneath my hat or something that you're always working on, which I think is the key because you never know which one is actually going to pop with whatever meeting or conversation you have. Uh, so I've still got some stuff I've had for a number of years. Uh, currently, uh, one of my main men, um, Henry McComas, who was the driving factor of what you see in Wolfman's Got Nards. Uh, as you know one of the producers and the you know the filmmaker and the editor uh, and uh, you know main main cameraman and uh, you know kind of like cohort with me throughout this whole production. He has a great script, uh, you know, his uh, first narrative script that he wrote and is slated to direct and i'm I'm fortunate enough to be a producer on that project. And so we've been spending the last year trying to, you know, get that up and off the ground. And, you know, I think we're close to, you know, getting into that next stage after the delay of everything shutting down last year. So that's exciting. And I'm working on a couple other new projects. I'm working with a friend of mine in town um, and, and some clients, uh, you know, to kind of create, you know, just different ideas, whether they're scripted or non-scripted or feature or television, that's what you just got to constantly be moving and, and, and putting more stuff on the page and, and, and trying to make things happen. So it's fun that the world is kind of, you know, cracking open a little bit and starting to turn and, uh, you know, hope everybody gets back to work and, and has success in the next uh, 12 or 16 months.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how things in the past, you know, become popular again, and stuff like that. And yeah. one of the things from the past that I do want to bring up that maybe one day might get revived is this little special that they did every year called. Circus of the Stars. <laughs> and I heard that you were on this a couple of times. Can you tell everybody what Circus of the Stars was?
1: Yeah. If anybody uh, remembers, then uh, good for you. Uh, this was a long time ago. Um, you know, every once in a while, networks did, you know, an annual, like they would do an annual Christmas special or an award show and, you know, networks, you know, that was big. Cause back then, like we mentioned before there was only three networks and, And movies, and that was your programming, and maybe some local independent stations. Um, But I believe it was CBS. I think CBS was the network that did Circus of the Stars, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, every year, um, you know, a a group, you know, led by a producer named uh, Bob Stivers, um, put actually a circus on, uh, and the acts were filled with celebrities. And so it was sort of, you know, an original concept way before reality TV or, you know, dancing with the stars or something like that. And uh, it wasn't a competition that, you know, and they didn't, you know, they didn't really document your rehearsals or your falls or your bruises or bumps or broken bones. Uh, but really what you did is you got paired up, you auditioned for the show, if you had an in and they placed you with an act that they thought you would be good at, or they would want to you know be seen and put on the show. And you would work for about four months every day and rehearse, you know, usually twice a day uh, and learn this circus act. And so you got to start from scratch. Uh, and if you're halfway athletic or coordinated or, you know, have some balance, you're way ahead of the game. And, you know, then you can go, you know, you get you get thrown into, you know, some more advanced acts. And what was great is one of the, the, the reason I got to do it the first time was back in 83 three i had just come off a television show that we had only done for five episodes again another you know half a season type show called baby makes five and the star of that show was one of my favorite humans on the planet is peter scolari who had just come off the hit show bosom buddies uh with this guy what's his name uh oh yeah tom hanks and um peter was actually the guy that got his own show right after bosom buddies and tom hanks said. Not he hadn't even just started doing some features like uh, bachelor party and splash and things like that. And then you know, he did okay for himself. Tom Hanks is doing okay. And uh, this baby makes five was a great show about you know, about this family that you know, in, in the pilot, the mom's pregnant, she has twins, and now there's five kids. And Peter Scolari is you know, this wonderfully talented, charismatic actor, you know, who's New York native, and he's also a juggler, he's you know, he's a, like a master juggler. and. When I was 10 and working on the show with Peter, he taught me how to juggle. And so we used to warm up the audience on the show and perform for the crew. And I got pretty good, you know, with Peter, you know, as a 10-year-old. And he had done Circus of the Stars that year. And then he was going to do one of the marquee acts, which was the high wire, the next year. And so he took me out to, you know, meet, you know, the producers in the show and said, hey, this is Andre. He's an athlete. He's coordinated. Uh, he can juggle. Like, he's, you, you should you know, put them through the paces and, and and have them on the show. And they did. And lo and behold, the next, you know, couple months later, I'm actually rehearsing twice a day. in you know, this warehouse, you know, with an aerial act with Tracy Gold. And what was neat about that show is you didn't learn this stuff on your own, you got put together with these, you know, world renowned professionals that are actually circus performers. And, you know, whether they're you know, at, you know, from Circus Vargas or Ringling Brothers or something out of Europe or the Big Apple Circus, or, you know, uh, you know even in the proto early days of Cirque du Soleil, you know, these were the professionals that would come and, and train you and teach you how to do this stuff. And it's incredible that, you know, you have to learn this stuff in three or four months and do these, you know, really, you know, physical aerial acts. And the first show I got to do a double cradle act, which is an aerial act where catchers hang down and throw you back and forth. And that was me and Tracy Gold. And then a few years after that, uh, I got to do the show again and I did a solo act uh, called The Low Wire, uh, which is sort of like The High Wire, except for it's lower and it sways and bounces.
0: Okay, awesome. (laughs) And now what we're gonna do is we're gonna play the lightning round where I'm gonna tell you a couple things and you tell me which one you prefer. So do you prefer CDs or cassettes?
1: Oh man uh love my cassette days but i'll take a cd
0: the royal rumble or wrestlemania
1: uh i think i'm gonna go old school and say i'm gonna have to go with wrestlemania
0: would you rather have a wristwatch or look at the clock on your phone
1: uh clock on the phone
0: fast or slow
1: depends on what you're doing
0: (laughs) the spice girls are all saints
1: no. <laughs> I'll take the Spice Girls. <laughs> pancakes Although or waffles? That was great too. I mean, those aren't really comparable, but yep. I'll go with Spice Girls.
0: <laughs> pancakes or waffles?
1: Uh, pancakes.
0: Football or baseball? Football. The facts of life or head of the class? Facts of life. Would you rather call somebody or text them?
1: Ooh, I'm a caller much to the chagrin of everybody
0: (laughs) i know i'd rather talk to the person unless it's something quick yes sunrise or sunset
1: both because it makes the day longer
0: selfies or group photos
1: group photos
0: yeah so you can crop out the one you don't like at the end you know anymore you need that group photo
1: that's right (laughs) Because sometimes you're the person on the and end. sometimes it's
0: you that gets cropped out. That's, <laughs> that's, right. that's a problem that's right. if you're at the end. Never go with that's the end right. of the group photo. That's right. And then the final one, Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer.
1: Oh. Man, that sucks. That's tough to guess. Um, and, and
0: they're both good. I, I, well, I,
1: I don't think you would have. I Know What You Did Last Summer without Scream, so I'll go with Scream. It, okay. reset, it, res, it reset a genre.
0: Yep. And what would you like to say to all the fans who are watching today?
1: uh, look, you know, people like you are the only reason that we, or I get to do what we do. Um, so, you know, no, that's appreciated at least from me.
0: And can you tell everybody your contact information if somebody wanted to follow you and keep up with you, how can they do that?
1: Yeah. You, you know, kind of the best, uh, place is, um, into this new thing called Twitter, um, and Instagram. <laughs> so it's, so it's, it's new to me cause I'm old. Um, no, uh, love Twitter, love Instagram on Twitter. It's, Uh, at andre gower and on instagram it's at andre gower official and if you're interested in wolfman has got nards or the documentary uh, please follow at the squad doc on both of those
0: all right thank you so much for joining us here today
1: yeah mike this was fun i appreciate it
0: you're welcome and thank you guys for watching and we'll talk to you all soon bye everybody